Martin Luther, who was the catalyst in the Protestant Reformation, a fellow that we've been talking about uh, quite a bit the last few weeks, a guy who wasn't perfect and said some things that, that, uh, that were clearly sinful. Uh, but God used him in, in, a, in a great way in terms of the Protestant Reformation. One of the things that Luther was very troubled about, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, was the sale of indulgences. Remember that indulgences uh, were being sold by the Roman Catholic Church as a way to uh, get out of purgatory more quickly, a way to shorten your time in purgatory. And remember, purgatory was the place that believers go to, to get cleansed from their sin, uh, to be purged from remaining sin, and to be prepared to, to be in the presence of God. And so during the time of Luther, there was a lot of fear or concern about what purgatory was like. There was, uh, amidst the population, you might say an angst about purgatory. And so folks were eager to, to, to find a way to, to shorten what they feared might be a terrible time of suffering and might be uh, a, a long time of suffering. Not only that, you could purchase uh, indulgences, not just for yourself, but also for deceased loved ones. And so if you really loved your family, you ought to help them get out of purgatory more, more quickly. But on what basis did the Roman Catholic Church make this promise? Uh, well, it is what they called the treasury of merits. And basically through the good actions of Jesus and the good actions of, of saints in the church, a treasury of merit had been built up or all of these good works had accrued. And so you could purchase indulgences or, or utter prayers for the dead or something like that. And that was a means of accessing the good works of Jesus and, and other saints and getting credit for them yourself. So the question is this, does God count the good works of others when he looks at our lives? Does, does he, when he looks at your life, does he count the good works of others and as he examines your heart? Or to put it another way, how do we get right with God when our own actions are not enough? And from a biblical perspective, our own actions are definitely not enough. Well, we're going to look in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we think about how to be right with God. We continue our series uh, thinking about the Reformation and how the truths from the Reformation still impact our lives today, these truths that have been recovered um, uh, in Scripture. Of course, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation on October 31st of, of this year. As we look at this letter, uh, the, uh, the letter uh, to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy, uh, be reminded the Apostle Paul wrote this letter probably around 63 AD. Timothy was a young pastor in Ephesus, so Paul was guiding him as he, as he pastored. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In this passage, we see that people are made right with God through Christ alone. People are made right with God through Christ alone. We're going to take time this morning focusing on verse 5 in the passage that we read. 
Notice that Paul begins verse 5 by saying there is one God. And this is a central tenet of, of Judaism. As Jews recited the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This was a central tenet of, of, of Judaism. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 says about eating food sacrificed to idols. Then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. So here is a clear rejection of polytheism. Here's a clear rejection of any notion that there are any other gods, any other true gods. He is the one and only God. But what it, what it is also saying is that there's only one way to God. If there is only one God, Paul's saying there's only one way for all people to be saved, and it is through him. And then Paul says in verse 5 here that there's one mediator between God and, and humanity. One mediator. What's a mediator? A mediator seeks to bring peace between two parties that, that have division or between two warring sides, to bring peace in the midst of a disagreement, to bring two sides together. Why do we need a mediator? Well, in Exodus fifteen eleven, Moses writes, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? What Moses is pointing out is that there is no other who is like God. He is completely and absolutely holy. So why do we need a mediator? Because God is holy, because, because he's pure. Holiness means that he is infinitely pure, that he is morally separate from any kind of sin. Imagine one of the giant grain silos filled with wheat, bushels and bushels and bushels and bushels and bushels of wheat in one of these silos, and then one tiny grain of corn. Would it be truthful to say, in the most literal sense, that if there were a grain silo filled with wheat, yet with one grain of corn, that silo is filled completely with wheat. Wouldn't be a true statement, would it? If we took it in the most literal sense, why? Because it's filled with wheat, but then there's one grain of corn, or one grain, pardon me, one kernel of corn. And that's the way it is with God. He is completely pure. There's not any grain of sinfulness or anything that is wrong completely and absolutely and utterly pure, none at all. But you see, every single one of us, we're, we're sinful. Every one of us has a heart that's been stained and, and broken by sin. In fact, God spoke, spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9, and the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Well, what's God saying here? He's saying that our hearts are absolutely broken by sin. They are incurable. Not only that, they're deceitful. They trick us. One of the ways the heart seeks to trick us is by making us believe that, that we're okay. Everything's okay. Spiritually, we, we, try to, we try to say to ourselves, hey, I don't have anything to worry about. I got plenty of time. I don't have anything to worry about. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a really good person. I compare myself to all these other people. Look at, look at how good I am. And so the heart tries to trick us and the heart tries to, to lead us to believe that everything is fine. But that's not at all the testimony of, of Scripture. 
And so the heart's deceitful. It tries to pull us away from God, to, to trick us into believing that we have nothing to worry about. But the bottom line is this, God is infinitely pure and we are depraved and sinful every single one of us. And because of that, we are God's enemy. In fact, in Romans 5.10, that, that's exactly what Paul makes clear, that we are enemies of God because of our, because of our sin. Now, if I was describing to you this, this huge fire that was burning hundreds and hundreds of acres, maybe even thousands of acres, and I was telling you about it, and I said, you know what? It was a wet fire. You would look at me and go, what? A wet fire? What do you mean? Because by definition, those two words don't go together. You don't have a wet fire. Similarly, sin and God, they, they don't go together. They, they, they don't work. So our sin puts, it, puts us at odds with a God who's infinitely pure. His nature is pure. And because of that, we are separated from him. We are his enemies. In fact, in Romans 1.18, this is what Paul wrote to the church at Rome. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's Paul saying? We face the wrath of God because of our sin. Again, why? Because of his infinite purity. He can't ignore sin. He can't overlook sin. It's sin and God don't go together. Wet fire, they, they, they don't go together. For this reason, we stand in desperate need of a mediator, of one who could stand before God in all of his awesome purity and to make a way for us to have a relationship with him. So who will make peace between, between us, people who are sinful, and a God who is infinitely pure? Can the good actions of the saints somehow achieve God's favor for us? Can, can we draw upon some treasury of, of merits? Can, can these saints be our mediator? Well, Paul answers that question clearly in verse 5. There is one God, and there is one mediator, one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us here, there's one mediator and the mediator is Jesus. You might say it like this, the one mediator is Christ alone. In Hebrews uh, chapter 9 verses 18 through 20, we, we get kind of a hint of, of the new covenant and the old covenant uh, with Moses and, and how Christ serves as our mediator in this new covenant. Verse 9 uh, chapter 18, that is why even the first covenant, or this is the Mosaic covenant, was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. So in the Mosaic covenant, sins were atoned for or our sins were dealt with before God by by the shedding of blood, by, by the shedding of, of animals' blood. And in many ways, in the Old Covenant, Moses was a mediator. He stood between the people and God. But now what we see in the New Covenant is that Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the true mediator. He steps in between sinful people and between God, and he's not only the mediator, he becomes the very sacrifice. No animals, the, the blood of animals need not be shed today, friends. 
Because the blood of Christ has been shed on our behalf. He is the mediator. He is the sacrifice. He poured his life out to atone for our sins. You see, God the Son becomes the mediator between God the Father who is offended by our sin. And he makes a way for for those of us who are guilty, guilty offenders to be made right with a holy God, a God who cannot tolerate sinfulness and, and evil. In fact, Jesus died the death that we deserved. We call this the substitutionary atonement. And this is what we mean by substitutionary atonement, that, that to atone is to, is to make us right before God. It's to deal with our sins, if you will. So Jesus steps in and he makes atonement for our sins. He becomes our substitute. That's exactly what he does. Colossians 1 verses 19 through 22 put it like this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in in him or in Christ and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Through his death, he presents us holy before God, blameless before God. What does that mean? That means that God looks down. If you have put your faith in Christ, God looks down at you and he says, you know what? She's my girl because she is blameless. Why why can God call her blameless? Because none of us are blameless. All of us are sinners. Because when you put your trust in Christ, the perfect life that Jesus lived is credited to you. And God looks down, and before him, he sees the perfect life of Christ. So, so when God looks at me because I put my faith in Christ, he doesn't look at me and go, man, that guy blows it constantly. He looks at me and says, that's my son. That's my boy. Why? Because the blood of Christ covers me. That's true for, for you if you are in Christ. Now, suppose a, a convicted serial killer who was in prison began to demand to, to uh, uh, all of the, the, the guards and the warden and all, and all of these folks who were working with him, I demand to see the president of the United States. And every time they saw him, that's what he said, I want to see the president. This guy's convicted of, of multiple murders. Do you think there is a chance that he's going to stand before the president? It is very unlikely. And like the murderer, all of us are guilty probably not of murder per se, but every one of us has gone our own way. We've done our own thing. We've rejected God's rule in our lives. We've said to him, you say this, and I'll do whatever I want. I'll say whatever I want. And so we are like the criminal who cannot stand before the president. And none of us can stand before God. We can't do it. It's impossible. That is why we need a mediator. Now notice in verse 5 that Paul refers to Jesus as, as the man, Jesus Christ. Now, back in the days of, of the early church, early in the 4th century, there was this, a dispute between a fellow named Arius and a fellow named Athanasius. Now, Arius believed that Jesus wasn't fully God. He believed that he was a created being of God, that he wasn't co-eternal with the Father, but, but that 
the Father had created him. It was, it was a heresy in the church. And, and today, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses still teach the very same thing. But in 325, at the Council of Nicaea, uh, Jesus' divinity was affirmed. The, the, the church leaders came together and they said, no, the, the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God. And we won't take the time to look at the scriptures. You can see in the bulletin, I, I printed some there if you would like to look uh, a little further. But we also see what Paul says here. He is fully human. Now, in 451, uh, another church council, the Council of Chalcedon, something called, and this is a, this is a big word, so just stay with me, uh, just, just hear this, but don't tune out. Um, the Council of Chalcedon affirmed something called the hypostatic union, and what that meant was that Jesus, as the God-man, had both the nature of God and the nature, uh, a human nature, together in one man. That's what it meant. And so there's two distinct natures. Jesus is fully human, has human nature, and fully divine, has the divine nature. So it's fair to say that Jesus is the God-man. Now, why does this matter? What what difference does it make? Well, for this reason, because he's the God-man, he's uniquely able to stand between us and God as a mediator. You see, as a man, he identifies with our frailties. He came to this earth to to show us God, to, to, to rescue us. So, so as a man, he, he's able to, to, to know what, what you experience. But as God, he was able to live a sinless and perfect life and be the perfect sacrifice for our sins because he's the God-man. He can stand between a holy God and sinful people and make a way. He can be the mediator. So because God makes us right through Christ, through Christ alone, Let's consider how this ought to affect what we believe, ought to affect the way we live even, ought to affect the way we do church. First, Jesus is at the center of God's plan of redeeming a people for himself. Jesus is at the center of God redeeming a a people uh, for himself. From paradise lost to to paradise regained, from beginning to end, Jesus is is central. In other words, when I say paradise lost, if you look in Genesis 3.15, you'll see a hint of the gospel right there in the garden. After Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, God God gave a word that that to the serpent that 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 he would send one who would who would strike the serpent. And the serpent would, would strike his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. It was a hint of the gospel. And then as you fast forward to Revelation 21, paradise regained, when when you look at heaven, you see that the Lamb of God there is central and and worshiped. So all scripture points to Jesus. Luke 24, verses 26 and 27, Jesus said the very thing. In John 5.39, Jesus said to the Jews, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. So Jesus is central in God's plan of redeeming a people for himself. Second, without Jesus, you have no hope before God. You have no hope. There is no treasury of merits that we can pull from. No one else's good works are going to work for us. There's only one whose good works are going to cover our sin. Only one. So no prayers to Mary or prayers to the saints. No good behavior on your part. If you're a really moral person or, or you're really a, a good fellow or a kind lady, none of that stuff is going to count when you stand before a God who's holy. It's not going to work. Jesus said it like this in Acts 4.12. There's one name given to men by which we may be saved. 
In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Christ, he's the perfect mediator, making a way for sinful people to be in a right relationship with a holy God. So your sin can be dealt with now as you kneel down at the foot of the cross or your sin can be dealt with later when you stand before God as judge. But make no mistake, your, friend, your sin, it will be dealt with. At the cross, God the Father treats Jesus as if he were guilty of our sins. At the cross, Jesus takes responsibility for our sins upon himself and at the cross, he treats us as if we had lived the perfect, sinless life that Jesus lived. Isn't that amazing to think about? And you can deal with your sins at the cross or you can deal with your sins at judgment, but you will deal with your sins. Scripture is clear. Luther said it like this. Begin your search with Christ and stay with him and cleave to him. And if your own thoughts and reason or another man's would lead you elsewhere, shut your eyes and say, I should and will know of no other God than Christ my Lord. But if you abandon this clear prospect and climb up into God's majesty on high, you must stumble, fear, and fall because you have withdrawn yourself from God's grace and have dared to stare at the majesty unveiled, which is too high and overpowering for you. For apart from Christ, nature can neither perceive nor attain the grace and love of God. And apart from him, is nothing but wrath and condemnation. You see, without Jesus, we have no hope. Third, Jesus is meant to be the center of your life. In other words, this idea of Christ alone that's meant to be true in your life and in my life. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Paul says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established by the faith. In other words, let Christ influence every area of your lives. Grow deep in him. Let him shape you and and transform you. Don't allow rivals in your life where you have competing loves, where you say, oh, really, I love him, but I really love, I love my family more. Or I love him, but I really love my work. I love it more. I love him Oh, but I love my hobby. I just, I love this. I pour my life into it. You see, he'll have no other competing loves. If we want to talk about Christ alone, we need to talk about it not just broadly, but we need to talk about it in terms of our very own lives and how we live. Is Christ alone central in your life? Do you really love him? Do you really seek him? Do you want to know him? So find life in him. He he forgives sin. And you know what that means? You can be free from guilt. You can be free from shame. He gives peace. This means that that he can help you with with fears and anxieties. He can can help you and, and give you strength, give you rest. And the list could go on and on in Christ. There are countless benefits but when we try to play around and we sort of say, well, I'm going I'm to kind of love you, Jesus, and then I'm going to love all these things over here a whole lot too. Well, brothers and sisters, that just doesn't work. It, it doesn't work. That's not what he meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. No, what was he saying to us 
as believers, he was saying to us, you must make me central in your life. Christ alone, far above any other love, you must love me. That's what he's saying. Now, Luther wrote a letter to a lady named Barbara Liskirchen. She was worried about whether she would be among those who were saved. And he said to her, the highest of all God's commands is this, that we hold up before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Every day he should be the excellent mirror wherein we behold how much God loves us and how well in his infinite goodness he has cared for us and that he gave his dear son for us. Contemplate Christ given for us. Then God willing, you will feel better. And the reality is that when you put your focus on Jesus and you really, really want to know him, not talking about playing games or trying to just check, check uh, a box to say, yeah, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm saying when, when he has your heart and you really, really, really love him, that's where life is at. That there's a contentment that comes from, from being close to him that nothing else can bring. For God created you to know him like that. We've become satisfied with so many substitutes but brothers and sisters, God is calling us to love him, to love him high above all others. Fourth, Christ calls believers to to be members of, of a local church. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, and I also say to you that you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So Jesus intended to build the church And the church would would be his body on earth. The church would be like the body of Christ here on earth, carrying out his purpose and and his plans. And 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul says to the church in Corinth, you are the body of Christ. In the book of Ephesians, you'll see this, this echoed over and over again. Now, there's no way to obey Jesus' words here in Matthew 16, 18, or Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. There's there's no way to work to, to obey these without something like membership in a church. We can, we can resist that and say, well, membership's not a, a biblical idea. But if you look at Matthew 18, 15 through 20, it'd be really hard to obey that without something like membership. See, the church is the body of Christ here on earth. He, he left the church behind to, to, to make himself known, to, to make the gospel known. So every Christian is meant to be in community and in submission to a local church. That, that's God's plan. It's his design. So I ask you today, are you an active member of a Bible-believing church? Are you an, are you an active member? Are you, are, have you put your life and said, I'm in? That, that's, that's Christ's plan for you. Parents, are you teaching your children by your example that being an active and regular part of a church is crucial, or are you teaching them that it's casual? You see, some people treat the church like a second-hand girlfriend. I'll call her when I got nothing better to do. When, when, when there's no, no one else to call. But I want you to understand, Jesus would have none of that. If, if you read in Ephesians, you'll see that, that Christ gave his life to purchase the church for himself to be his bride. See, Jesus' plan is that every single believer become a part of the body of Christ. So if Christ alone would be true in our lives, then we must be devoted to his body in the context of a local church. Fifth, 
a faithful church is Christ-centered in devotion and ministry. So if we want to think about how a church should operate in light of this notion of Christ alone, well, a faithful church is Christ-centered in devotion and ministry. In other words, a faithful church is full of people who really love Jesus. In Revelation 2-3, the church at Ephesus was rebuked because they had lost their first love. They had lost a passion and a zeal for Jesus. They were still doing a lot of good things, but they didn't love him like they had loved him. And Jesus said, you've lost your first love. Love me with all that you are. And so this morning, we need to think through this question. Do I really have a love and a passion for Jesus? Do do I really love him? And if not, we need to cry out to him and say, God, would you change my heart? Also, what does this look like in the context of a church? That a, a Christ-centered church is not legalistic. A Christ-centered church isn't making a lot of extra rules and saying, well, you've got to jump through this hoop and jump through that hoop and we're, we're going to make up these rules and these guidelines. No, a Christ-centered church is committed to the Word and the Word teaches us that Christ must be central. A Christ-centered church isn't distracted. And, and what I mean, a Christ-centered church is very careful that in its ministries it doesn't allow itself to become so complex and doing this and doing that and some of this and some of that that Christ becomes sort of a sideshow. No, a church must be careful to keep the mission central. We must be Christ-centered in, in all that we do. And so that the activities that, that, that we are, are carrying out and a part of the ministries that are happening, we need to ask, do these point back to Christ? Are these faithful to the mission that we've been given? A Christ-centered church also is humble and, and, and grateful. Humble because when we stand here and say that we have a right relationship with God, it's not on the basis of our own ability. It's on the basis of Jesus alone. And so that ought to bring us to have great humility. But also grateful because as we reflect on the fact that God has saved us and given us eternal life, that ought to fill our hearts with gratitude. We ought to be thrilled that, that God has shown us that kind of grace in Christ. And a, a church that's Christ-centered ought to be passionate about making the gospel known, about sharing Jesus with people, about telling people you can find life in him, about saying to people, you know what, you may chase after drugs and you may try drugs, but I want you to know Real meaning is found in Christ. You may chase after alcohol and you may drink and find some kind of pleasure there, but I want you to know, friend, true life is found in Christ. You may be chasing materialism and buying this and getting that and the newest thing and the the new body style, whatever, but I want you to know true life is found in Christ. See, a Christ-centered church is driven by commitment to get the gospel to people, to, to share Christ with people. So I want you to imagine today that you're about to walk into a courtroom and that you're on trial but worse still there's no doubt you're guilty you are guilty of the offenses of which you are accused what's your hope is your hope that you have a really great attorney or are you hoping that the judge for some unbeknownst reason, will we'll show some compassion? What's your hope as you enter that courtroom? Well, friends, we will stand before God at the end of time. We, we will stand before Him. We will be held accountable for our sin. 
How can we as guilty sinners enter before a God who is infinitely pure? Is it through our own works? Is it through observing the sacraments? Is it by confessing sins to a priest and, and doing penance? Is it by indulgences and, and hoping to, to, to reach into other people's righteous acts? Is it from avoiding this kind of sin or that kind of sin? With Luther and the reformers, we must answer, no, it's not. We can stand before God not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of only one, the righteousness of Christ alone, the righteousness that's found in the God-man. And on that day when you stand before God, if you've put your faith in Christ, your sins are covered. God looks at you and he says, you know what? She's righteous. He's righteous. But if you've hobbled together some plan of your own, a plan of trying to be good or of doing some religious things. Friends, that will never work. Your only hope is that you're found in him. God makes us right with himself through Christ alone. Through Christ alone. So if you're here today and you're a believer, I want to encourage you to love Jesus. Don't be satisfied staying where you're at. Let's seek to know him more fully, to to love him more deeply. You know, some of you here today, you you want that. But the distractions of of life and the world and responsibilities of uh, of life, well, those things have have weighed you down. And this morning, what you really need is just kind of a fresh start. And and you you could do that. You could say to God, you know what? God, I've I've gotten weighed down by by the responsibilities of life or I've gotten distracted by, by the allures of life. But God, what I really want is I want to know you. I want to love you. I want my life to be marked by a devotion to Christ alone above all others. Today, you could pray that. And if you meant it in your heart, I want you to know, friend, God's going to work and help you. He's going to help you go deeper in him and, and help you find your life and your joy in him. You see, the reality is that many of us are giving up a feast for a piece of stale bread. We're satisfied with things that are so small and little in comparison to the grandeur and glory of knowing Jesus. So let's cry out to him. You want your heart to be driven by this notion of Christ alone. Now some of you who are here today are not believers. There's never been a time in your life where you've put your faith in Jesus. And if that's you, I want you to know you're gambling not with hard cash, but you're gambling with heaven itself. You're betting that what we've talked about today is wrong, or you're betting that that you're going to have more time. There'll always be another day, but friend, you're counting checks that haven't been written. You're counting checks that can't be cashed. You you don't know if you'll have another day. You, You may, but you may not. When you stand before God, will you be ready? This is not something to gamble with. Won't you call out to Jesus? Won't you say to him, I know I'm guilty. I don't have anything to say except forgive me and I'm putting my faith, my life in your hands. And the Bible says that if you'll call out to him like that, that he'll save you. When you put your faith in Christ alone, he'll save and he'll never let you go. Let's pray.